Today is today's a banner day because we are finishing Ezekiel. Finishing all the cheers. It's like, really, a cheer for Ezekiel. And we were joking that, like, you know, church growth, it's all about preaching through Ezekiel and singing hymns. Like, that's what we need to do. And that'll get it done. But no, I think Ezekiel has been. Ezekiel has been awesome to us, and so what I want to do is I want to, I want to read our passages for the day, do a little bit of previously in Ezekiel, like we're doing our Netflix binging, and, uh, so, and, and work through that, and then walk through these two passages that we're going to um, use to center our, our hearts for the morning. So if you have your Bible, or whatever you're looking at God's Word on this morning, whether it's an app, or the Pew Bible, or you brought your own, Um, your phone or a pad or whatever. We're going to be turning to Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel chapter 43. We're going to have one finger in Ezekiel 43, but we'll also have one finger in Ezekiel chapter 47. So two passages this morning as we cap off our time in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 43. Um, And once you find that, if you would, in honor of God and his word, let's stand together as I read this passage. Ezekiel 43, we're going to start with verses 1 through 6 and then move over to chapter 47. Ezekiel 43, 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I had one speaking to me out of the temple, And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Let's move over to chapter 47. 47, a bit of a longer passage here. 47.1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outside, the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And whenever the water goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the water, where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Eneglaim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will, will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all, tr- all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. All right, some, some great imagery from Ezekiel. 
You know, when we started Ezekiel, um, we started with this idea that, um, you know, if you've ever been to a zoo, some of you guys, have you ever, been, anybody been to a zoo lately, back, okay, zoos, that you've got these, these animal enclosures, and the old ones are kind of, you've got a lot of distance between you and the animal, but the new ones, you get to be like up close and personal, they got like plexiglass, have you guys done, done this before? And on the other side of the plexiglass is a wild animal right? Whether it's, like, uh, whether it's like a gorilla or like a tiger. We use the example of a tiger. And that um, if, if there's a tiger on the other side of the glass, that you can see this tiger up close. Um, but typically, the, the adrenaline is not pumping quite as, bit, quite as much as it would be if you encountered this tiger out in the wild, right? That, that and if you brought kids along and it's the end of the day, they might be sitting in their strollers and they're like yawning, you know, I don't know if you've ever done that. We had this double stroller when our kids were young. We used to have put two in there and one sitting on the front. And we would tootle around and we'd go to the zoo. But like the kids at the end of the day, they're like sleeping in the stroller or yawning. And this idea of like, as you see a tiger or a lion or a gorilla, that you would yawn, right? And sometimes we have to remind ourselves as we look at scripture that sometimes we can have created a world for ourselves theologically or spiritually, where we feel like, look, we've got this all down. We've got this all kind of domesticated, that God kind of ends up behind glass. And we can get really close, and we can look at God and be like, oh, that's awesome. Or some people can be like, oh, gosh, when's this guy going to be done? And some of you might be doing that right now, okay? But that's okay. That's okay. But we can come to a place in our lives where we end up yawning at the thing that ought to produce an elevated heart rate and adrenaline, right? And that as we come to Ezekiel, that sometimes we find, for like Ezekiel, that we come to a God who we find out shows up in places where he should not be showing up. Do you remember at the beginning of the book? That God should have been in the temple, right? But here's Ezekiel in this refugee camp in Babylon by an irrigation ditch, and he looks up, and the glory of the Lord is coming right at him. There's no yawning when the glory of the Lord, it's like, it's like rumbling. We, I, I, this idea um, uh, that it's, it's like these many waters are like when I was growing up between, I grew up in Irvine between the El Toro Air Station, the Marine Base, and, um, and, or sorry, between the Tustin Air Station and the El Toro Marine Base. And every once in a while, you'd get, well, every once in a while, it was like once a week, you'd get these super stallion helicopters flying over the house. And it'd be like, even the windows would rattle and, you know, car alarms would be going off. But that was before the days of car alarms. Car alarms aren't very useful, are they, these days? Um, anyway, all that to say that when, you ha- when, when God is showing up, if, if that's a man-made thing and it kind of wakes you up, that the presence of the Lord coming out of the east, and for Ezekiel, it woke him up. And for the nation, and we looked at Ezekiel, and Ezekiel, that God shows up in places where God might not normally show up, and we wouldn't expect him to show up, and actually that God might call us to a vocation that we wouldn't have expected. We looked at Ezekiel, and Ezekiel was trained to be what? He was trained to be a priest. And this whole book, the vision happens actually on his 30th birthday when he's supposed to be being installed as a priest in the temple. But he's, a, he's 500 miles away in Babylon, having been taken captive, having watched the Babylonians come in and destroy. The Babylonians came in three waves. Daniel went first. Ezekiel went in the second wave. And, Dan, and Ezekiel had watched the destruction of his land, the destruction of his city, the destruction of his vocation. And God says, hey, Ezekiel, what I want you to do is I don't want you to be a priest. What I need you to be is a prophet. And I want you to eat this book. I want you to eat this scroll. And then I want you to speak it out. And so God shows up in places where he's not supposed to show up. And God calls us to be things that we didn't anticipate that we would be. And if that kind of thing doesn't get you a little, like when we see God, we might be excited, but we also might be a little afraid. Right? Like if we don't see God and think, oh my gosh, what is God, what is, if God is here, what is God going to do? Like there's a little bit of the, the elevated heart rate and the adrenaline and the wondering what might happen if God shows up. And that's the book of Ezekiel. And one of the things that we realize also with Ezekiel is that sometimes God's sensibilities are not our own sensibilities. 
And when we look through Ezekiel, there are some very difficult passages in the book of Ezekiel. And one of the reasons is because Ezekiel, God sends Ezekiel to call the nation out about their idolatry. Their, their idolatry had centered them on wrong things. Their idolatry had distracted them. They had made, uh, they had made kind of pacts and, and uh, alliances with foreign nations and their gods and looking for protection when Yahweh had said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And they said, well, we're kind of interested in these gods from Egypt because they might be more powerful. And it took them off center and reorient. And, and God was sending Ezekiel to say, you got to reorient. you got to repent. you got to repent. you got to turn. you got to turn and you got to reorient. And so this previously in Ezekiel, we have all of these episodes in which God might show up in places we wouldn't expect. He might change our vocations. He might show us our idols that we're so used to that he might say things that might sound strange to us and he might do things that might go against our sensibilities. This sound, does this sound like the God you worship? I hope it does. I hope it does because that is indeed the God that we worship. And we cannot domesticate him. We cannot put him in an enclosure. We cannot yawn when we see him. And so Ezekiel has some bad news. Bad news if you were here in the fall. We started in the fall. Bad news for a long time with Ezekiel. But this new year is a chance for the good news. The gospel according to Ezekiel. And today we finish off that good news, that gospel. We look at the, the end of all things where God will make all things right according to Ezekiel. And so what we find is that we, you might see on your, on your uh, as you came and you got a bulletin or a worship sheet, and it says Ezekiel 40 to 48. We're not going to do all of those chapters, okay? But I do want to hit the high points on this, and I do want to um, note that these last eight chapters of Ezekiel Ezekiel presents a vision of hope. And we had noted that last week that the nation of Israel had said, our bones are dried up, which means that they have lost their spirits, that they have, they have dried up, and we, then we have this vow, that, and, and that we have been cut off, that we've been cut off from God's good graces, that God has for some reason looked away from us, and we have looked away from him, and even as we turn towards him, that he's lo still looking away, and that God has, that our bones are dried up, we've been cut off. And Ezekiel, last week, we, he, he had this vision of the valley of dry bones, and the beginning of reconstituting Israel, breathing life, ruach, the spirit, the breath, the wind of God blowing through. And today, what we're going to see is that even as the nation of Israel had suffered, really the, the toppling of all the pillars of who they are, land, Jerusalem, temple, covenant, king, who's their king, all those pillars had fallen down, and today Ezekiel is going to begin the process of re-erecting those pillars, but not as they may have thought. All right, you guys with me today? I'm pretty pumped. I mean, I'm pretty pumped. We always go through at the beginning of our worship time, uh, we, as we pray, we, we talk about where we're at. What, like, are, are we, you know, what's what, uh, our energy levels? Like, where do we feel like we're at? And it's one to ten, but you can't say seven because everybody says seven. Like, if I asked you, how are you doing today? Everybody would probably say, eh, I'm doing about a seven. You can't say seven. You got to go either high or low. Got to be high or low. Okay, so, but as we were, as we were meeting today and just thinking about what we were doing, and even as Haley was singing, I was like, this there's something about thinking about the future. There's something about thinking about not just the future, but the end of all things, how God is going to wrap this whole thing up. And there's something about that that I think should excite us, and there's also something about that that has been ah, a little bit tough if you've been around Christian circles for any amount of time. Like, for example, I'll say this, okay? Um, just a little aside, a little disclaimer as we get started. What I read, what I read about this river flowing out of Jerusalem and reviving things and, and, do, and God re-going re into the temple, among Christian interpreters, there are kind of two different views on how this is all going to go. That is this passage to be taken literally in, in the sense that um, that this is a literal prediction to be fulfilled for ethnic Israel sometime in the future. There's, and there's many Christians that are here. The, the, the tradition that I kind of grew up in, that I, when I heard the gospel, I was in more of a literal interpretation of prophetic things. But there's also another school of thought when it reads Ezekiel 
that would interpret this as being more of a spiritual, a figurative, or idealist interpretation. The idea that um, all, for, all God, for all of God's people, that this will be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth and spiritually fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, what I want to say about that is um, I want to say about these interpretive issues have at times been overemphasized in Christian traditions. Okay? And I'll, I'll speak on, for myself in this way that I would say that there these are areas, the, the, kind of the interpretation of these passages, like if you're more literal or if you're more metaphorical or, or spiritual in your interpretation of these passages, I would say that these are areas where two believers who love Jesus can agree to disagree on these interpretations, okay? Now, I'm not, there are, there are look, there, there are times where I think believers have been divided on these things, and, and again, I, I have no stones to throw on this. I simply think in my years of teaching theology at Biola University and also teaching at Fuller Theological Seminary in my years of study that I have found myself on leadership teams with people who disagree about how to interpret these passages, and that it has not affected our mission into the world. That we would agree on the things, on the most weighty things, but on the things that are about the future that are the most mysterious, that we might find some grace and hospitality for each other. And I would just say this, as we go through this, just as we think about this, as we walk through these passages, I think it's worth thinking about, like, do I, does this, it, might this be more literal or might this be more spiritual? And as we get to the end, I'll kind of talk about the way I deal with this. So is that, is that fine? I, I want to just, I want to let us hear these passages and then kind of jump in. And again, if you're like, look, I can't believe you just said you had, okay, I get it, I get it. I've been around the block. Okay, nothing you will say will surprise me. But I would just say this, that I have worked with other, I have friends that would interpret these passages differently. I have, um, I've been on leadership teams with other believers who, I teach with other uh, people and believers who love Jesus who might interpret these differently. Is that fair? All right, all right, fair enough. All right, aside, aside, let's move on into the passages. This is good. Whenever you have a disclaimer to start the sermon, it's like, you know, you never know. Like, I should have had you sign a little, a little affidavit before coming in. Um, anyway, all right, so two passages today, two passages. One has to do with the temple, and the other has to do with the land. And both are meant to excite our hope. Both are meant to excite our hope. Look at chapter 43. Chapter 43 is where we began. 43, verse 1. It said, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the Lord God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. All right, so um, I have some photos. Okay. Um, because um, I've been to this gate, and if you go to our Israel trip in Tapped Israel 2022, we have an informational meeting afterwards. That's a little um, commercial for that. Um, so here's our first photo. There we go. Okay, so this, you're like, what is that? If you were standing at the temple, the temple entrance, okay? The temple is not there right now. It's the Dome of the Rock. It's, it's Muslim controlled. Um, and so there's no Jewish temple there. But if you were standing there and you were looking east, this is what you would see. You can even see the sun coming up. It's in the morning. The sun's coming like, I thought this was a good, a good spot. But that's the top of the Mount of Olives out in the distance, okay? The Garden of Gethsemane is just out and down the valley and over to the left, okay? That's the Garden of Gethsemane. If you just go down to the valley, the top is the Mount of Olives. Very significant theological places. Uh, it says that the, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. So he's at this gate, the gate facing east. The glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Verse 3, and the vision I saw, it was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, just like the vision I had seen at the Kabar Canal, I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Here's our next shot, and this is actually the gate that faces east. Now, um, I wrote an article on the gate facing east for a, a Bible dictionary, 
and so when I went, I wanted to see the east-facing gate. It's called the Golden Gate. Um, and um, the thing is, like, no Muslims want you near the gate. So I had a really interesting conversation with a Muslim guard. It was great. He told me all about Islam and Muhammad. And I was like, so why do you think this gate is significant? So this gate has been sealed up. And there's a cemetery right in front of it. Because this is, according to prophecy, in Zechariah, this is where the Messiah is going to re-enter the temple. And this has all been shut up. And in Ezekiel, there's something about the eastern gate. There's something about the eastern gate that is theologically significant. Okay? And so if you go there, it's, it, you can't get through. You can't even get down to see it. But I wanted to see it. And there's, there's all kinds of great stories about people discovering the gate and they're falling down. And, okay, enough. Indiana Jones kind of stuff. Um, it, you know, it's like archaeology is not that sexy, um, but Indiana Jones makes it feel pretty awesome. Um, anyway, but you go there. Did I just say archaeology isn't sexy? Okay, let's scratch that and move on to the next thing. Okay, but all this to say, all this to say, um, if, go back to the last, the last one. The Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah, is where Jesus in the last days is going to land, set his feet, and make all things right. The Eastern Gate is where he's going to re-enter the temple. And this idea that, um, the, uh, the other thing about this is, and I, I, we, we're talking about the glory of the Lord entering into the temple, Okay? And we, I think when we think about the glory of the Lord, we think about triumph and we think about this awesomeness of, of what, what God is going to do on the Mount of Olives and on the Temple Mount. But the, other, the thing about this is right out this gate in the valley is the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you read the Gospel of John, when does the glory of the Lord begin to appear? It climaxes not with Jesus' return or even his birth. The climax of the glory of God is Jesus on the cross. And as we think about the glory of the Lord, and even Ezekiel, and, and it's so interesting to hear how John interprets Ezekiel, but the glory of the Lord might not be coming from the mount. It might be coming from the valley. Even as Ezekiel says, the valley of dry bones, that the glory of the Lord might not be coming from the mountain, the glory of the Lord might be coming from the suffering of Jesus beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane. That that's a different, that, that is a different view. But those who follow Jesus seem to think that as we read Ezekiel and as we read Jesus' life and as we look at Jesus' life, the glory of the Lord, his most glorious moment was not landing on the Mount of Olives. His most glorious moment was what he did on the cross and in his suffering. So, with that in mind, okay, that, with that image, okay, with that image in mind, I, I just want to go through um, with this. So, all, all this to say, that there, these two verses I want to highlight about what Ezekiel is saying here, okay? Verse 2 and verse 5. It says, um, the earth shone with his glory, or um, I think it's the New Revised that says, the land was radiant with his glory. Man, that sounds good. You know, as, as Haley was singing about on earth as it is in heaven, can you just imagine the land being radiant with the glory of God? Right? The land was radiant with his glory. And then in verse 7, it says the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There's two things that are being, two pillars that, that Ezekiel is re-erecting, that these pillars have been broken down for the people of God. For the people of God, all of these identity markers that God just kind of said, well, that one needs to go, that one needs to go, that one needs to go, that one needs to go. But now God is saying, Ezekiel, time to put these back up. And one of them is the land, that Israel would be in the land. And God shows up, and the land radiates with glory. And we're going to see that even more as we get into the next passage. But the other thing is this. One of the pillars is this idea of temple in Jerusalem. That the Babylonians had destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. And God gives Ezekiel a vision. This, it's going to be rebuilt. It's going to come back up. And there's, some, there's awesome things that are going to begin to happen as this pillar is re-erected, as the temple is re-erected, as the glory of the Lord, which abandoned the temple, why did Ezekiel have a vision of God's glory by the Kabar, by an irrigation ditch in a refugee camp? 
because God's glory had left. The idolatry had pushed him out. And so God goes on his chariot and he goes out to Babylon. But it won't always be out in Babylon. God is going to come. There's going to be the glory of the Lord is going to re-land in the temple. One, the land is going to radiate with glory. Jerusalem and the temple are going to be rebuilt. And then another, another pillar that needs to be rebuilt is this idea of king, of kingship, that God is going to give the nation of Israel a king. And we've already looked at this passage about the good shepherd, that in the past there were shepherds who fed themselves, shepherds that feasted on the sheep. They weren't interested in the sheep for, uh, for anything but a meal. That's what thieves and robbers do. They, they look at the sheep and they want meal out of them. They want, they want food or meat out of them. But God is going to present a good shepherd. And look at what he says in verse 6, 43, 6. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. Do you hear that? This, this, this pillar that's being re-erected about kingship, that God is going to say, I will be your king. I will give you a good shepherd. And of course, we on this side of the cross and resurrection know that the good shepherd is Jesus. We also know that Jesus seems to be a re-embodiment of the temple. There's other questions about the land, but we could continue on and we could just no- note that this idea that, that Ezekiel is re-erecting these pillars of identity, land, temple, king, and of course, as all these things get brought up, the last pillar comes back, which is this, covenant. What's the covenant? I will be your God. You will be my people. I will turn my face toward you. I won't turn away. You know, the, the ironic blessing that may the Lord bless you and keep you, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. And so in just, these, in just these seven verses, all of these pillars are now coming back up. Land, Jerusalem, kingship, covenant, they're all coming back up. And as you read this, that's, that's, that's the significance of this passage. Sometimes we can just have these flyover passages, um, but this is not a flyover passage. This is a marker that God is making all things new. All right, I feel like I, I feel, sometimes I'm like, do we, are there any questions? Like, let's take some questions. But we can't do that, we have to move on, okay? This is where the classroom side of me is like, hey, we should have some questions. But let's just move on, we can ask questions afterwards. All right, turn to, <laughs> turn to chapter 47. Turn to chapter 47. I do feel like it'd be great to be able to take questions. But again, the, the genre is a sermon, not a lecture. All right, here we go. You know when I go for the water that I'm really getting worked up, up here, Okay. Here we go. So Ezekiel chapter 47, uh, beginning in verse 1. So the river of God will flow through the temple, flow from the temple, and it will bring life to the land. So in one of the more, more vivid images that we ask, is this more literal or is this more figurative? One of the more vivid images of this restoration is seen in chapter 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east, like we were just looking at. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate, led me around the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, water was trickling out on the south side. Okay, um, so let's look at the next picture. So this picture is from the top of the Mount of Olives, looking back down to the Temple Mount. Now, it might be a little bit hard to see, um, but the big golden dome in the middle is where the temple would have been. That's the Dome of the Rock. But this is from the top. Uh, this is a Jewish, it's a Jewish cemetery in the foreground. And then, um, and then it's a, there's a Christian cemetery in the valley, and then there's a Muslim cemetery leading up against the wall. And that, um, uh, I should have brought my pointer, but anyway, uh, this is great. So you can see that, and you can see it for real if you go Israel. 2022. <laughs> so shameless. What a shameless plug. It's only shameless because it's awesome. It like brings the Bible to life. I mean, okay, let's keep going. Um, all right, so water. What's the deal with water? 
Okay, one of the things, um, before I went to Israel, it was like water, there's so much water, and yeah, water is the source of life, I get it, la, 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 la. Well, okay, here's the thing. In California, I did a little research this week. In California, um, the precipitation that falls in snow and rain, okay, okay, over half of it evaporates. Can't, you can't stop that. That's just the nature of, of how the water cycle works. We could talk all about that later. Okay? Of the remaining available runoff water in California, we capture through snowmelt and dams and water reservoirs about 50% of that runoff. Okay? The rest of that runoff, the other 50% of that water, flows out to the ocean. Okay? We do a very... I don't want to be political, but we do a horrible job of capturing runoff water in California. This is a desert. The only reason why we are here is because, I, and I, I said this before, we don't steal anybody's water, but we take all of Northern California's water. Okay? There are land, okay, okay. Okay. Just hold your thoughts on that and, and strike that from the recording. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, in Israel today, they capture... of all precipitation that falls. 85%. And they don't just do it now. They did it back then. They had all kinds of systems for when rainwater came. It didn't just run out to the ocean. They captured it into cisterns and other storage facilities. This This was life. Water was life. Water is life today in Israel. And so when you hear about water flowing out of the temple, this is not just water flowing out of the temple. This is life flowing out of the temple. Water is significant. Living water is running water. Um, Standing water is, well, standing water. If it's living, it's running. If it's just in a pool, it's standing water, and you would collect that in cisterns and wells. But living water was always to be preserved or preferred because it was, it was cleaner. It, was, it wasn't filled with sediment. It, wasn't, it didn't have all the other things that had to sink to the bottom of the well. That this was, this was clean water. It was living water. The imagery here is life. It runs out. It refreshes. It revitalizes. Um, so, in this picture, so what we're looking at is the eastern wall of the temple grounds. On the, on the left-hand side are the southern steps, okay? Um, this valley that's right there, this valley actually runs all the way out to the east, out to the Dead Sea. So, if it rains here, the water comes out on the east at the Dead Sea. If there is a spring that erupts from underneath the temple and it comes out the east and the south, it goes out eventually and makes its way to the Dead Sea. Um, Let me see if we can do this. Let's read the rest of the passage, and then let's see what we're doing here. So this river is going out, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper as it runs eastward. Verse 6, he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And he led me out to the bank of the river. As I went out to the bank of the river... There were many trees on the one side and the other. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, which is the desert, and enters the sea, which is the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea. When the water flows into the sea, it will become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many fish, for this water goes there, that the, waters, that the waters of the sea may become fresh so that everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Englom. It will be a place for spreading of nets. Its fish will be of many kinds, the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. And on the banks, both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. They will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Let's look at our next picture. Our next picture, this is from the top of Masada. Um, and what you're looking at out there in the distance, what's shining is the Dead Sea. And on the other side of the Dead Sea is the country of Jordan. This is what is called the Great Rift Valley. 
the Dead Sea is almost 1,400 feet below sea level. Below sea level. Okay? So Death Valley is the only comparable low point in the, in the world to the Dead Sea. So Jerusalem is, is almost is about 3,000 feet. And when you, go down, when you go from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, like your ears pop because of the air pressure changes. It's a, it's a, it's a 4,500 foot drop into the Dead Sea, into the Great Rift Valley. And the idea here is that what's going to happen, and let's go to the next thing. You can see kind of the scope of that. But here's, here's a map of Israel. At the top is the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River runs down, and there's the Dead Sea at the bottom. Okay? The Dead Sea is dead. Okay? The Dead Sea is dead because it's also called the Salt Sea because water flows into it, but no water flows out of it. And because of that, it becomes stale. And as it stales, the water evaporates, and as the water evaporates, the salt content grows, making it an unhip. It, it, it's not habitable for any living thing. No fish, no nothing in the Dead Sea. Okay, they mine it for salt and minerals today. But um, and the water level is actually lower than it was about a hundred years ago. Um, but the, it, it's it's dead. And this passage is show is this idea is that what would happen. If the Dead Sea was infused with a whole new water source of fresh water, this is what Ezekiel is doing. He's, he's saying, imagine, imagine what would happen if just millions and millions and millions of gallons of water just start pumping into the Dead Sea, that eventually it became so much water that it turned from salty and dead to fresh and alive. That it would be more like the Sea of Galilee where you could fish and where you could, you could, you could, have, uh, you could have orchards and you could have all kinds of things. that You could have fruit from trees. Infused with fresh water, drinkable water, the Dead Sea becomes a living sea. It would transform the climate and the foliage. Here's, here's a good example. So I did this little screen recording um, to show just the nature of how deep this is. Um, I'm pretty proud of myself for these things. So, so, um, so let's, see, let's see the screen record. So this is, the, this is, you can see on the map, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. And this gives a good sense of kind of the scale of the divot in the land. So you got sea level on the left. And as we go in, you can see kind of how deep this gorge is at the Dead Sea. Now, imagine that filling up with fresh water. It would transform the entire climate. It would make a desert into a oasis. And this is what Ezekiel is saying, that when God comes, when God's spirit dwells in the temple, that streams of living water are going to flow. Has anybody else talked about streams of living water? Like Jesus in John chapter 4, that streams of living water will flow that life will flow, that wherever this water goes, life will come. And that God's plan for the end of all things is not simply to leave things in death, but to rejuvenate them, to revitalize them, to make things that are dead alive like a valley of dry bones. That he might make a valley that is known for death and a sea of death be made into a place of thriving economy, thriving food, thriving water sources that people would gather around this water and rejoice that God had made, has made a desert into an oasis. All right. All right, so is this literal or is this metaphorical? I don't mean to, you're like, why did you just ruin it, Pastor Craig? Like, I had it in my mind. I, you know, and, and here's, the, here's the thing. Um, Having been there and seeing it, like, I think that it provides the, the, the categories of imagination. Like, I, it would be awesome to see this place renewed. And, and I think that whether you take it literally or metaphorically, it's not really, will this happen literally, as much as, um, will this happen in, after, will it, after the coming of Jesus, will it happen in this, what we call the millennial kingdom, or will it happen in the new heavens and the new earth? 
That, that's really the question because most views of this passage are, it's not that will it happen, but when will it happen? It has to do with the way God is going to redeem this earth. Is he just going to wipe the whole earth out or is he going to revitalize what is already there? And whether you take this literally or metaphorically, the idea is that some people think it happens in the millennial kingdom and some people think it happens in the eternal states, that this is the new heavens and the new earth. And so one way or another, God will renew and refresh this earth. And whether it happens exactly in these boundaries, Ezekiel may simply be talking about God is going to refresh and revitalize everything including this area, and he's using this as an example. I think that's, I mean, when you think about climate change, that's awesome climate change, right? Like, let's go for that. If we're, like, should we lean into climate change or not? Like, if God's doing the climate change, then we'll do, anyway, no politics here, but, all right. Um, (laughs) Whatever our interpretation, the vision is intended to give us hope for the future so that we can live well in the present. One of the reasons why maybe, like I I might not hammer home this is literal, is when Jesus meets the woman at the well and she's like, hey, um," and he's like, or she says, do you want a drink from the well? He's like, if you knew who you were talking to, um, you'd ask me for a drink. And she's like, what? Um, And he says, well, look, um, anyone who believes in me, streams of living water will flow right out of them. And I think for Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus talks about, look, you, you, You've seen, you've heard about Jacob's ladder and angels ascending and descending in the temple. You will see angels ascending and descending in the Son of Man. Like, Jesus seems to think that if you want to meet with God, you don't go to the temple. If you want to meet with God, where do you go? You go to Jesus. And these streams of living water, is it water that is going to make people alive, or is it ruach, breath, spirit? So again, I want, to hold those t- I want to hold those two things out there, but Jesus seems to think about Ezekiel that the Spirit is going to make people alive and that where you meet with God is in the person of Jesus. And so I, I, want, to hold, I want to hold these things loosely, but I also want to hear them for what they are. I want, I want them to point us to what we need to point to, which is the person of Jesus, the reality of the Spirit. Those are the things that make alive. If you want access to God, if you want to be reconciled to God, you go through Jesus. He's the door. He's the new temple. That's how we encounter God. After hearing Ezekiel, listen to Revelation chapter 21. The last, there's two, two, only two more, tw- Revelation 21 and 22, those are the last two chapters in the Bible. This is, what the, this is what John says, this is what John reports from his vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea was a place of death. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of he- the heaven of, of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, here's the throne, remember the throne? God says, I'm gonna put, there's a new, Jerusalem's coming down, it's got a throne in it, someone on the throne, we just heard about that in Ezekiel. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be called their God. That's the covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. This is Ezekiel chapter 43. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. I mean, Revelation 21 is basically a commentary on Ezekiel 24. So this idea that what's happening, that there's water flowing out, and Jesus is saying, it's done, you can drink from this water freely. I think what's awesome in Ezekiel, what's really interesting in Ezekiel is that Ezekiel, we, we didn't read it because I was joking with Gordy 
that um, I'm going to go through all the measurements of the temple, and we're going to go through all this, and we're just going to fastidiously work it out. But one of the things in, the, in Ezekiel is Ezekiel says, we're going to rebuild the temple, we're going to have these gates. We're going to have three huge gates, and they've got these doors, and we can keep the bad people out and the good people in. In Revelation, you know how many gates there are? There's 12. And you know if the doors ever close? Spoiler alert, they don't. Because the nations, the Gentiles are allowed to come in. Because it's faith in Jesus. If you come in and you're like, Jesus, worthy is the lamb that is slain, you're in. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's bought us with his blood. And the book of Revelation in many ways, especially in chapter 21, is this commentary on Ezekiel. If you look at the end of chapter 21, there's a couple of verses. It says in verse 22, 21, 22 in Revelation, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine in it. For the glory gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So, is this literal or figurative? I mean, take your, take your pick and be gracious to anyone who disagrees with you. Okay? Because what this is supposed to do is give us hope. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. Sometimes we think about, what, should we do all this looking into the future and this prophecy and thinking about what, what may be? And, and Lewis has this, has this quote. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, as some modern people think. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, he says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world are precise who thought most of the next. And one of the things that I, I want us to do as we finish Ezekiel is this idea that Ezekiel is not just a roadmap for the future. And Ezekiel is not just this ancient dusty book for the past. Ezekiel is meant to mobilize us into the present, is to give us hope for one. He writes it to a, to a group of people who are at the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, and he means to give them hope. And when we hear this, we should hear the hope that we have in Jesus, that God, God's saving power is available to us, and it's available in the person of Jesus. And that ought to mobilize us into this present moment to say, the love of God needs to be poured out on every man, woman, and child in my reach. Because when, when heaven comes down, the gates will be open. And anyone who says, worthy is the lamb who was slain, come in, drink, drink your fill if anyone is thirsty. And this idea that what Lewis says, those who think most about the next world are the most effective in this present moment. That would be my hope, is that as you hear this, you think, there is, there is such a sure hope that I can risk in this world. I can risk in this life. I can take chances. God will be with me. God will go with me. God wants to do things in this world. There is such a sure hope that we can move out in faith. Let me say that again. There's such a sure hope that we can move out in faith. I think the last thing um, one more Lewis thing. Uh, his last book in the, in the Narnia series is The Last Battle, and where he talks about all this eschatology, and he, but he writes it in story. And um, the last chapter, the last chapter of the book is called Further Up and Further In. And um, if you know anything about Lewis, his idea of, 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 uh, of heaven is this idea that, that hell is further down and further out, and heaven is always further up and further in. And the more, the further up you get into heaven, the wider an expanse it gets. It's actually the opposite of what you would think as you enter into, you enter through a door, you expect a more confined space. He argues that the more that you enter in through this door and it becomes wider and wider and wider, further up 
and further in. And in the, in the last chapter, um, this group of people, that they're, they're landed in Narnia or beyond Narnia in this, in, into heaven, and they start running, and they find, like, they can run. Like, they can really run. They can run faster than they And they just start running and running and running. They start running up hills, and they're running, and, 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 God, and, and they're feeling like their strength is being renewed even as they run. And they're meeting people, and they get to the gates. They get to the gates of essentially heaven. And they're reunited with old people. There's a wonderful scene where um, the, the present king is reunited with his father, but his father's not old and gray like he was in battle on the day of his death. His father is vibrant and alive. And they embrace as, as peers. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome when you think about your own dad that we might be loved by the, that we might be embraced by the fathers of our youth, Right? as equals and so and lewis just paints this picture but at the end they 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 meet aslan again and aslan is the christ figure and let me just read the last paragraph of the book he says the term is over the holidays have begun the dream is ended this is morning and as he spoke he no longer looked to them like a lion but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Oh, let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Father, we're grateful for this passage. We're grateful for Ezekiel. And even today as we, as we gather We gather to enact something that is going to happen in full when all things are made right, and that is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great feast. And today, Father, we come to celebrate Jesus, your table, the Lord's table, a precursor, a beginning point to this ultimate celebration that will take place when we are in your presence. And Father, we, we pray today that um, even as our hearts have been excited about, about the image of a renewal of a desert, a renewal of lives, and even maybe other things have come to mind as we've, as we've heard this and as we've, we've read these passages, we pray that now as we come to this table, that you might continue to remind us that you are our God and we are your people. That Jesus, that you have paid the price for us to be reconciled to our Father. That you are the King who sits on the throne. And that you are the temple through which we come to to encounter our God.